0: Bippity bop, bippity boo, welcome to A Little Impolite, the podcast where we explore the art and science of branding. Yes, you heard it. Today we are going to make a small shift in the traditional format of the show and we're going to talk a little bit about branding, business and storytelling. I promise this is not going to be just another business podcast. I'm going to try to keep this light and fun, edgy, interesting. But each week I'm going to be sitting down with uh, industry experts that I've met creative professionals and really successful entrepreneurs to bring you the latest insights and inspiration for how they built their brand what they're doing for success talk about some of their failures i'm going to keep it real it's not going to be one of those boring business q a podcasts we're going to have real conversations with these guests find out where they've messed up where they've succeeded some of their lessons for life and how we all can become better entrepreneurs so I'm really excited about this new format. It's going to give me a lot of opportunity to sort of explore some of the things that I'm passionate about in business and branding, but most importantly, talk about content and storytelling and, and and that intersection between business, branding, storytelling, and sort of the connecting with your audience on a real and authentic level and not just selling them shit all the time. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you'll join me each week and just sort of let me explore the uh, inner workings of the entrepreneurial life. So... Here we go. I am excited about today's guest. Uh, We've got a rebel CEO with us who's turning the photography industry on its head in a bit. Um, That's right, Trevor Hooten. He's the mastermind behind Pass, which is Pass and Shoot and Share. And it's a gallery and business marketing platform used by print independent photographers. So um, let me recap what that is. So photographers don't have the resources or revenue to sort of build their own Sharing model of their photography. Once they take these really cool photographs and they want to share them with their audience or their clients, instead of just emailing them or using Google Drive or Dropbox, um, he has a product where it it engages with each of the photographers independently. So you, in in a sense, get your own personal private website gallery. And then photographers would upload their images to this gallery, and then a, a bevy of tools at their disposal would then share those with their clients in order to sort of have a a point shoot and sell platform, so that photographers can sell their images to the clients. Um, clients can view them. It's an interactive. It's uh, has a merchant account. It's a really cool, uh, really cool platform, and I know that from experience because I've been using it for the last couple of years. And I've used a bunch of different photography sharing platforms um, for this purpose because I don't really doesn't really make sense for me to build one my uh, on my own. And I have to say that I've been the most pleased with this one, and that's why I brought him on the show because he's a newly minted CEO, and I really actually don't know his story. I'm not sure if he had, um, if he overthrew the old CEO and and you know, ended their life. I don't really even know how he became CEO, but I do know that he was prior to this, like most entrepreneurs, he had a career in finance and banking and private equity. Um, sorry, let me rephrase that. Not like most entrepreneurs. What I meant to say is that most entrepreneurs who have a, a stored history of, of perhaps commercial work or corporate work, and they just realized that there was something bigger for them. So let me back up. So um, Trevor started his career in the world of high finance and private equity. Um, but like me, he just felt unfulfilled, you know, the nine to five rat race. Uh, so he started searching for a new career where he could apply some of his creative thinking skills and he is really creative. He's a great conversationalist. He's got a, a brilliant mind. Um, I love interacting with him. Um, so he found pass or shoot and chair, which we're going to get the clarity on what I'm supposed to call it because I've, even though I've been using it, I'm still confused, um, through a model of, uh, what's called ETA or entrepreneurship through acquisition, so he obviously purchased Pass. It sounds like we're going to find out how he did that. Anyhow, he's already stirring up a storm. I've had several conversations with him on what he's doing with Pass, um, some new innovative ideas and approaches to connect with his his clientele, which are photographers, um, through education and and branding and all sorts of different things. So it's right at my alley, and I'm kind of working with him on a few things as well. So maybe we'll talk about that. But uh, on today's podcast specifically i really want to talk to um, trevor about how do you make a brand more likable so he's just taken over the reins of a company that has been in business for some time and i mean i've enjoyed using it but he he's sort of coming in with some innovative ideas and some product changes and some sort of like protocol changes and how we in, engage with the software. And I really want to just talk to him about, in general, how is he going to make his brand and the brand in general more likable? And then we'll hear about his meteoro- meteoric rise to the top of this business, how he got there, you know what he did before this, and just have some real fun storytelling around that. So buckle up and get ready for some real talk with Trevor Hooten and, on this episode of Little Impolite. And, and I am going to bring him in. He's in the green room Listen to me ramble for the last four and a half minutes. So here he is. Trevor, Good what's up, up brother? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I was looking at my start time I'm like, shit, I, just, I have a lot to say just to kind of set that up. So I thought I'd bring you in and just let you sit in the green room and listen. Yeah, to you great. Read.
1: I just did the thing. Um, you ever go into a conversation with someone and it's so early in the morning that when you say hello, it's you realize it's the first time you use your voice that day?
0: <laughs> that was me on the podcast this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Makes two of us. Um, so you're are you in Oregon? Is that where you are? I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. I knew we were West Coast. I just don't remember where. But Pass is based in Oregon.
1: Pass is fully remote. Um the former owner of Pass, the founder of PASS, uh was in Bend, Oregon when um up until last year or two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a team there a few years ago, but for the last few years it's been a fully remote company. So Got people contributing to our growth uh, in many different time zones, uh, not just the West Coast. We've got Mountain, Central, Eastern in the U.S. covered. We've got uh, Spain, we've got Bulgaria, we've got India. Um, probably forgetting one or two there, but we've got a fully worldwide team.
0: That's that's pretty impressive. So I don't know if you heard me in the outset, sort of talking about what it was I really want to cover today is how you make a brand more likable. Yeah, um, And you're certainly charged with that because you're in a very competitive environment. There's a lot of sure. different people who do similar to what you do. Um, so I want, I want to talk about that. But before we jump into the the meat and potatoes of that, tell me a little bit about how you got to, to become the CEO of Pass because I know you were doing something former, just like I was, um, felt burnt out or unfulfilled and looked, looked for something different. How did you get to where you are today as the CEO? Yeah, first, let me, I realize I got a,
1: I got a uniform I can put on here. So Hell hop. yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, man. Well done. Well done. Black hat, black tee. That's the podcast uniform, right? I like it. So, um, yeah, like you mentioned, so I started my, my career in finance. Um, you got a good head of hair, by the way. Oh, thank you.
0: I have a hat because, you know, there's not a good head of hair of hair. So I just wear a hat so that, like, the lights aren't like. Yeah, I'm sure
1: you'll edit a lot of this out, but um, I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning, thankfully, because I've. Um, you know, I had the 6 a.m. Uh, local time show with you, and so I'm getting texts. Devo texts me, and I'm like, Oh crap, I don't have time to shower. So I did the thing <laughs> with the the sink, and the anyway, the the hairs it's fine now, it's fine now. You, know,
0: you don't, you don't, you wear the shower cap is what you're saying, that's right, exactly. Yeah, perfect, got it. <laughs> um, can so you actually we, buy shower caps anywhere, or do you only get those when you go to a hotel on the little gift bag at the top of the? Expensive. I'm sure
1: that there's someone out there who will sell you a shower cap. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, sorry, carry on.
1: Yeah, my crew started in finance, uh, which f- for me f- felt t- fairly typical because it was a little bit of the environment I came from in college <clears throat> it was kind of tracked to a role in uh, like in Wall Street or consulting, really. Um, that was the majority of my classmates from undergrad business school went in that direction. Felt like a d- good direction to go. And in fact, I would say that it was. It's a great training ground um, for building a professional skill set. Where I felt, as you men- mentioned, unfulfilled was often we were, um, I-, I had the good fortune to sit across the table from a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders of very, very successful companies doing hundreds of millions of, in revenue. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of evaluating investments in them. And after we made investments in those uh, people, those companies, um, I was like a little shit brain, excuse me, excuse my language, 25 year old, uh, pounding on them for, you know, information that we needed to do our jobs. And in some ways I was kind of their boss. It felt a little bit weird. You probably talked about imposter syndrome before, Mm -hmm. Um, but I just always felt like I was on the wrong side of the table. Um, you know, I thought that it was um, cooler. I thought it would be more fulfilling and maybe even more wealth building um, to be an entrepreneur or at least a leader of a company rather than the guy collecting a bunch of data to put together some spreadsheets to report up the stack of investors. Because it's funny when, when you get to the world of like big private equity, there's the company and then there's their, their investors and then they're the investors of the investors and then there's the investors 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 that it keeps going up the chain
0: um there's always somebody bigger isn't there
1: it seems like it um i never found the top of that but uh you let me know <laughs> if you do anyway i um there's a kind of long messy middle in there but i'll fast forward because um, i'm sure we have a time limit i could go on Carry i on. found pass after um A little over a decade
0: in my career, I decided to, as you mentioned, do this thing called entrepreneurship. Can you pause on that for one Mm -hmm. second, actually? I do want to go back to that transition you made before you found PASS, because I think in of itself, that story, this ETA model that you use is pretty interesting. I actually am curious about it because um, I've thought about purchasing some companies that are in that same space as well. So I want to hear about that. But before you do that, um, it's interesting. Most of the entrepreneurs I speak to, I don't know if you heard me in the outset, most of the entrepreneurs that I speak to have similar backgrounds and stories as yours and mine, where they were in a position of some type of authority, some type of success for the most part. Um, I myself was you know, making considerably more money than I could have ever made initially starting a photography business. Um, and I was meeting with, I was working with, I was fresh out of college just like you, but luckily enough, I got hired into a really cool program. Um, it was an executive development program, so I got to sit mm-hmm. and meet with CEOs, like the high-level players of this company. And it was banking and finance, too, like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was on the mobile home end, which is interesting. So um, yeah, crazy. <laughs> I got some crazy mm-hmm. stories. I, I've been to the middle of nowhere Indian reservations, Native American reservations, um, in the middle of bumfuck Alabama, mobile home parks. Like, I've literally seen some of the craziest shit of America that you can possibly imagine. But- Nonetheless, let me go back. Um, I was in a similar position to you. I was working with these really high-level uh, executives within the company, and there, there was this is going to make me sound good or bad. I guess p- depending upon your context, but there was one in particular project that I was given by my by my boss, and he was re- he was like an SVP of the company. He was kind of a big cheese, and I got assigned to him um, after I graduated from the program. He hired me full time because he he, and I, he liked me. So. Um, and I did a good job. And um, anyway, so he gave me this really cool project. Sorry, you're gonna, we're going to get back to your story, but I wanted to share this. So we he we, we gave me this really big project. It was basically like a two-year project, right? And um, the two-year project was multi-millions of dollars. And what it was is it was basically bringing all of the field reps who collected money from the mobile home owners or renters, whatever they were, um, bringing them into the digital age. And I had this huge project where I I rolled out GPS systems to all the drivers. And this is like seven, 800, 900 drivers all across the country, Um, GPS systems and we digitized their tracking system before that they were just using yellow notepads to track loans and stuff like digitize oh, that whole thing. Like we best custom built a proprietary software. Like I brought in programmers and stuff like it was cradle to grave. I managed this project and, um, being the being the, the brash 25 year old like you just referenced of you were when the project came to an end it was a huge success like man i f- i knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. and i had other people that were part of the project as well i was the project lead for this so it wasn't i didn't build all this shit like i directed it ideationed all this stuff and then built a team to do that and when when the project came to a conclusion they were doing this like award banquet for all the people who were involved in the project And somebody else who was like uh, an SVP of the company who was like somewhere in the food chain of this project took all the credit for it. And she was like given this promotion and these big old, big cash wads of cash to burn out. And I was just basically given a fucking notebook with like a, Pins, saying like, hey, good job, buddy. And I was like, motherfucker, I yeah. did that entire project. Uh, there's, and and so for me, I was like, and so that continued on for a few years where I was just doing this work that I was doing all these crazy stuff, and um, I, I was unfulfilled, like you, and wasn't getting the type of leadership capacity that I really wanted out of this position. And so I left. So anyhow, that's my story as well. And and and. and Like nine out of 10 times, the the entrepreneurs that I bring on this show have the similar conversations where they just were unfulfilled, wanted something bigger and better for their life and just decided to step out off off a cliff just like you and I did. So, Yeah,
1: Yeah, I was actually reflecting on something similar to that where I think it's clarifying for me. I, I find that the entrepreneur who's like the dorm room, like never, no professional success, The dorm room founder who builds a billion dollar business is few and far between, although definitely more glorified than the one who decides mid-career that they want to start something. Um, I feel like entrepreneurs, and this is definitely my case, often have the feeling that they are more talented or at least high potential than anybody around them will give them credit for and willing to take a risk on themselves to build something that they couldn't do with the support of others, right? yeah. And so it's like, in truth, I had a little bit of a career struggle where I thought I was uh, high enough potential for this thing, right? And everybody else kind of pat me on the head and said, um, in a vi- like, I, I'm. I don't want to have a huge chip on my shoulder about this, but like, kind of gave me a pat on the head and said, "No, you're. Um, that's not you yet." And so stay down here, and I'm sitting. Okay, well, I guess if nobody else will put me up there, then I'll have to get there by myself.
0: Sometimes you have to take a step back first, right? Yeah, you have to either humbling for sure, isn't it? Say it again. It's humbling, isn't it? Yeah, Uh, yeah.
1: There probably there are a lot of words for it. Probably Mm -hmm. humbling is one of them. motivating if you can turn it into motivation um
0: i found it to be really humbling because i thought i was this badass brash highly sought after person in this program that i was one of only two people in the world that were recruited into this or that were hired into mm -hmm. this program so i'm like yeah hello don't you know who i think i am yeah and then and then completely passed over and just really not even acknowledged for it and and i my and looking back i'm like my ego sort of helped me make that decision to leave eventually didn't it I don't know that I would make that same decision today. Well, actually, I probably would. But um, my motivation, I think, centrally was boredom and ego getting in the way.
1: Yeah, I think you got to have a little bit of an ego to see what the world gives you and say it's not enough.
0: My therapist will argue with you, too. You're blue in the face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least, at least in the context of me,
1: <laughs> ego not even not being necessarily a bad thing. Um,
0: yeah, it's a good podcast actually to talk about ego. All right, I got off target, so sorry, let me bring you back in because I know it's early sure. for you. So you decided to leave the company. You're looking for an opportunity using this ETA model. Tell me yes, a little so bit about it's that. And how
1: you- a fancy concept. Um, uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, investors have been buying businesses for decades, right? Um, yeah. It's more and more common now and the rules of the game are more defined. ETA is this entrepreneurship through acquisition concept that has been kind of specifically applied to people like me uh, who are um, kind of either mid-career or maybe just coming out of business school and decide that instead of trying to rise a corporate ladder, they want to go buy a business. And um, it's been popularized in a lot of the um, kind of like top tier business school programs. And they are even like entrepreneurship Clubs, which have the ETA subsegment in like at UCLA here, I'm recruiting for an intern right now. Um, they have that. So there are a couple different flavors of it, but in my case, um, you know, I put up a little personal capital, passed the hat around to some friends and family that believed in me, um, and put a very small amount of a large purchase price down on a business that I found where, um, and then used a SBA loan, basically, to, to purchase the rest. So the, um, the U.S. government, which sometimes gets a bad rap fairly justifiably, has this amazing program for building liquidity in the small business M&A uh, market. So it's called the SBA 7A program. You can get a, a loan that's made by another bank, but backstopped by the federal government, basically to provide sale opportunities where they wouldn't exist for um, small business owners that are retiring and um, have no one to pass their business down to, right? So if you own a plumbing company that's been in your family for two generations and you're 70 years old, but your kids have gone on to be like middle managers in a big corporation or something and have no interest in your plumbing business, what are you going to do? It's too small for a big investor to buy it. But because this loan program... Um, the market for that business is actually much better because using the loans, buyers can make much better returns on it. Anyway, so I was able to access this program and I found PASS through a search for a company to buy. Sorry.
0: Within within that SBA 7A program, there's a search parameter for companies as well?
1: Yeah, so the um, the target company has to meet certain criteria. And mm-hmm. because it's bureaucratic, there's a long list of criteria. Sure. Um, And, uh, and so I was looking for a deal basically that met all of the criteria that would allow me to access that loan program. Um, and and, pass was uh, one
0: of many that were, were, pass was one of many that were in those search. Yeah. yeah. Uh Um,
1: yeah. And, and it, the program was not so chicken or egg here. So the program, just to clarify, was not designed for these high-powered MBA students who wanted to acquire businesses. The MBAs were an outgrowth of a very successful program that had been operating for decades. And they kind of found that program and said, hey, this is actually a great model. And then kind of branded it ETA. And I found that model and um, felt like it was a great fit for me because I'm not the guy who wants to stare at a blank sheet of paper and eat ramen noodles for two years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The kind of founder story. I'm more of a an optimizer, figure out what's working in a business and then scale it. And so I found pass, um, which was not the 70 year old owner of a plumbing business, but an owner who wanted to move on to other things. And so, um, it's a, um, it's a fit for when you want to acquire a business where there's a departing CEO. And so the reason it's entrepreneurship through acquisition and not mergers and acquisitions, right, is because if you acquire, you then have to step into the role of CEO, mm-hmm. which does not work for investment firms. They want a management team to remain in place. But for yep. me, it's kind of perfect, right? I have a little bit of an MA background and my aspiration was to be the leader of the company.
0: It sounds like uh, akin to the real estate situation I'm reading about right now going on all over the country where there are just investment firms buying up large lots of land with no intention of selling them and just holding them for renters. So it's sort of… And you're not renting it, but it's a similar paradigm. Um, I heard you say, it's funny, you said you didn't want to eat ramen noodles. And at first I was thinking, what is I actually love like ramen it? and ate them like, <laughs> no, same here. I was like, is he, are we going into a silver spoon bougies conversation here? Is he actually yeah. going to admit? No, I'm right, not buddy. like the nice ramen was- you
1: get from a restaurant. Like, no, literally cup noodles. <laughs> My kids love them. So- have them all over the house. They're staring me in the face. And I was like, I got to <laughs> eat one of these.
0: It's so funny because growing up, it was like my number one go-to snack. And then as an adult, I sort of would like every once in a while I'd have this like guilty binge on them. And then I saw a story somewhere on Instagram about all of the bullshit that's inside of them. And I was like, yeah. so for like 30 years, I've been eating ramen noodles and filling my body with bullshit. So great. Thank you. Anyhow, so you, what what were, some, I'm just curious, what were some of the other. Uh, knowing you like I know you so far, I'm assuming you had sort of a short list of companies that met the criteria. Why was, and, and what were some of those other companies if I don't mind, if you don't mind sharing mm-hmm. and how did PASS become sort of like the go-to for that? Who was the, how did it become the winner for your your investment?
1: The companies were all over the board. So one of them was a uh, distributor of replacement gym parts for commission. excuse me, replacement parts for commercial gym equipment. So like, mm-hmm. Their customer was like a lifetime fitness. The Mm -hmm. treadmill band breaks down. They need a replacement. Or the screw in that weightlifting rack breaks down. Uh, It had been built by its owners over like 20 years. It's a nice recurring revenue business. Um, There was another one where it was like a... um, Basically a virtual mail service where... If you, as you may know, if you own a business, you need a physical address for your office that can't be a P.O. box, right? But like, you don't want that to be your home. And so anyway, they had like storefronts all over the country in any market that you want to, and then you just pay a subscription and they'll scan your mail and open it to you or forward it if you need it. So businesses all over the board, really the main criteria for me was that um, uh, the business had earnings, right? It had profit, right? So we're not talking high-flying startups that lose a ton of money. Had profit, very loyal customers, very important to me. Um, Typically recurring revenue is a good um, almost requirement. Um, And then at least a certain amount of profit. Um, And so those are kind of like the business or financial characteristics. And then obviously retiring owner and then um, a deal that's suitable. So from a valuation perspective, it makes sense. And also there are certain parameters that, again, would um, make it qualifiable for the SBA 7A loan. And that's kind of a long list of esoteric concepts that I won't go into right now. But um, so the main criteria were like business and financial characteristics, and then uh, um, and then the the deal suitability. Um,
0: there was so why did pass, so why did pass when that. Yeah. So it
1: matched the business and financial characteristics and the, the deal that I proposed, I, I thought this, this business is too good to accept the deal that I proposed, I found out later why it may have been, um, may, why it may have worked. But, um, initially I thought like, I like this business. It has great characteristics, which I can get into in a second. Um, might as well make an offer on the business, but there's no way this gets accepted. And sometimes you're surprised. Yeah. Um, so, I so say- had
0: you had, had you had, sorry, uh, had you had any experience in the photography content creation world prior to this, or you were just basically none. Like, basically none. none. none.
1: I, I, I will say my only experience was like having been photographed, although mm-hmm. I wasn't even aware of like that there was a photography business. When my wife hires someone to take photos of me, I'm just saying, how much longer does this have to go on? <laughs> and um and then during COVID you haven't worked with me yet. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. And then during COVID, my wife uh would um rent out our house for uh photographers that had their studio shut down or needed places with like some good light or a nice background to shoot. And then that's kind of when I started getting curious about the photography business. But that's a because but only because i was involved with pass in evaluating mm-hmm. the business that's a whole separate story though
0: so you step in and what was your official step in date because you've been there for a yeah. few months now
1: may 27th 2022 at 11:59 okay.
0: 59 okay so not quite a year coming up on your first year so what are some of the things and and, and today i wanted to really talk about what makes a brand likable what makes a brand successful so it it already had a legacy of some success you mentioned mm-hmm. it had it already had a, a revenue recurring revenue which meant it had repeat customers which it meant oh, yeah. sort of like its customers like the product when you first came in what was it what was your first impression of it and and sort of what are some of the first few things that you did to take this brand over and make it more in your vein
1: yeah so first impressions obviously it's a 10 or 11 year old business or so. Mm. Um, It was started by kind of like an influencer in the photography world who started influencing before the word influencer means what it does today, built a community around himself and really created a movement in the photography world. Um, And you mentioned in your intro, there's shoot and share and there's pass. And anyway, pass is the business shoot and share is the movement that became a community which is now kind of um, embodied in a big Facebook group um, and runs a photo contest every year. So shoot and share is kind of the community, the mindset, the movement, and then pass is the business that um, in part monetized that. Does pass stand for something? If it does, I don't know.
0: Because it's all when I first came across it, it's in big capital letters. As like, it almost looks like an acronym. I just wasn't sure if it answers yeah. it for something.
1: I probably should get the answer to that I don't. You probably
0: know should <laughs> the naming
1: story of the that. Business.
0: That wasn't in the business manifesto that you it, took over in May.
1: Yeah. Um, if it if it was, I haven't read the business manifesto. So, what I like tons and tons of customers. Right. So lots of people have validated this product. Mm-hmm. Said it works for me in my life, and it's a service worth paying for. Um, and, I, and I'm
0: one of those customers. I validate yeah. that as well. It's, it's yeah. a good and, product.
1: Yeah, and you're one of the more successful users of the product. which We can talk about in a little bit. Not necessarily your success, but um, we'll get there. No, the, let's do. Let's just make this about me today. <laughs> long history. And people who pay every month or every year. And for businesses like this, the um, the churn rate's important. So mm-hmm. the people who opt out, the churn rate is actually fairly low for a business like this. Um, and then it is profitable, which isn't always the case for internet based or software businesses. But this one does turn a profit, which is important. I was like looking at your business uh, bookcase back there. I see profit first on there. I haven't read that book, but it's an important concept for most businesses. Take note yeah. of that one. Um, and um, I thought this space was pretty interesting. There are a couple things that I have learned since that um, make me like the opportunity even more, although make also make me realize that I will have to work harder to capitalize on the opportunity. Um, Initially, I thought that the um, target customer, and if you talk about business enough, you probably talk about a concept that I'll call ideal customer profile, right? So like you don't build your service around your own capabilities or successful businesses build services around customers rather than the capabilities that they can offer. Um, you think of the person whose needs you are trying to meet and then design your services rather than say, this is what I'm good at, somebody come buy it, right? Some people do that, but um, the more successful ones think of their customer first. and. Anyway, my initial thinking coming into the business was that we're going to be best suited for beginner photographers who are kind of just picking up a camera and figuring out their business. I think what I've realized is that when you look at the features of our platform um, and the optionality and configurations that we enable, it's actually fairly complicated And, um, there's a tension between simple and easy to use, which is geared towards entry level people just learning and feature rich and customizable, right? So there's a tension between easy to use and customizable.
0: Yeah.
1: We're actually further down on the customizable end. And I've realized looking into the business and specifically, um, photographer level activity that there are. A few people who maximize the use of our product, and many, 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 many more who have not yet realized how to take advantage of all of our features and um, and elevate their elevate the profits of their photography business. And I think I, I knew that coming in, and so my thinking was on was more geared towards, let's take that long tail of people who have not yet mastered the platform and focus on educating them so that they can um, take, take fuller advantage of the features that we offer to build um, client happiness for themselves and ultimately more profitability for their own businesses.
0: And their success is your success because that's how you make your revenue. And that's right.
1: Um, Yeah. uh, The majority of our profits are generated in what I like to call um, an alignment of interests uh, Mm -hmm. revenue model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which we can go into more if you'd like. Um, I'd like to actually shift even further that way, but um, that will probably take a little bit of time and a little bit of work and a lot of communication to our photographers because.
0: So you had mentioned when you first came on site um, virtually or, or literally that you have a staff from all, all over the place, all mm-hmm. over the world, were these people that had already been part of the company for these 10, 10 ish years from the predecessor or, or is this new global model something that you've brought in?
1: No. So the, um, the company um was staffed by like three ish people that were full-time and a few kind of worldwide contractors got it and um we need more than that <laughs> and so i'm i'm building uh, building out the team a, a little bit in anticipation that we can eventually make enough profit to support that team um but the, the team had actually been relatively new. I think the longest tenured person was about three years. And, um, and there were two others who had been around for two years um, who have since actually left. And um, part of the reason for that was I mentioned the founder built a community. I don't want to get too much into it on the podcast because I don't I think it's not super relevant to my story and where we're going. But there was a little bit of a falling out with the community that the founder had and it caused some turnover in the business. And so basically all faces are fresh now. Um, And so I've got a business that's been around for over a decade um, with only one person on the team who's been around for more than six months, um, including myself.
0: so sorry if um there's a glitch in it but so you have this business is already well established it has a a very good customer base and but it sounds like you have you didn't
1: He slowly... Re-
0: Hey, can you hear me? Sorry everyone, we are having some um, I'm just going to pause the recording for a minute because we're having some technical difficulties. I think I think maybe we're back. Yeah, man, can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you now. Shoot. We just had a horrible glitch in internet power. That was scary. I, did, I don't know if, I don't even know if you heard anything I said. Did it, Bare, did it barely damage? anything. Barely anything. So sorry about that for everyone who's listening. Um, I, was, I was asking, it doesn't sound like from from what I've seen so far in the system and from what I've heard in conversations with you, that you came in as the new CEO and made a bunch of shifts and changes right away. And, and I was telling yeah. the story of a, of a colleague I know here. Um, he, he purchased a company. And he went in right away and just changed everything. Like he, he got rid of the most of the staff, changed yeah. a lot of the policies, changed a lot of the products that the, that the company was offering. And in talking with him, he had a huge downshift in customer existing customer retention and loyalty because they were sort of in shock at all the different changes and they just didn't know what was going on and, and took their money elsewhere. It doesn't sound like you did anything like that. You've sort of taken what, the existing yeah, quite model. The quite the yeah. opposite.
1: Yeah. My, my philosophy for... At least six months was do no harm. Right? Yeah. Um, I, it's a business. It's working. Um, I might think that I have some ideas, but my ideas get written down in a notepad somewhere to be revisited after I am certain that I've done enough research to figure yeah. out if those are good ideas or bad ideas. Um, you know, there's a lot of time. I didn't buy this to, to turn it around or to catalyze some sort of growth. My um, my intention success for me is continuing the business on the path it's on.
0: So that proclivity for patience and sort of pragmatic business values around was that part of your success story when you were in the finance world? No. You know, you're handling you're handling someone else's money, or were you more risky in that space? I'm,
1: I was too risky, too impatient, and um, a little too brash to succeed in the finance world. You need really, really steady hands. You need to be very disciplined. You need to say no to 999 out of a thousand opportunities to be successful in the finance world. And I just don't have that type of patience.
0: So coming in as a new CEO of a company, where did you pick up those skills? How did, how did you develop those that, that, those patient, that patience element?
1: Well, um, you have to first convince yourself that it is the, um, the only path. It is the only thing that you can do. And then you just need to remind yourself every day Um, don't screw this up and you have incentive not to screw it up because, (laughs) uh, that SBA loan I mentioned, um, it's personally guaranteed. And so, um, if you, uh, if you run the business into the ground and if your customers leave you, then they take away your house and they take away your retirement and they take away your, uh, kids college fund, um, and your car and, um, probably eventually your marriage. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so, um, so you just got to wake up, remind yourself every day that, uh, you, you know, we're in this for 10 years or more. And um, there's a business here that's working. And the, the um, changes need to be made very carefully
0: so you're eight months into a brand that you've taken over what are some of the things that you ultimately want to see with the company in the next few years what is it what now that you've had a chance to go through this assessment period and we're going to get to the point of this conversation which again yeah how actually we're,
1: we're at it now i think what um yeah I'll, I'll tell you because i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and remind me what the because we talked about it before but
0: yeah how do you how do you make a brand likable how yeah. do you make a brand or a product how do you make it likable? You know, you said that basically you, your client avatar is you figured out what people want most, and then you're designing a product to meet those needs is what I heard you say, yeah. right? So, and the other model is, you know, you focus on what you're re- really good at, what's your value proposition, and then yeah. you share that with the world in a variety of sundries. So, yeah, and both models have had, both both models can be successful, right? If, if your product is good enough and, and love it enough and you're passionate about it enough, people are going to buy it. But somewhere in the middle of that model and your model, there is sort of an intersection of how do you make that product likable regardless of which modality you're using? Yeah. And so I'm curious to pick your brain on as, as you know, you're know you now in a consumer-facing world. You're now working with staff. You now have a team behind you. You have a product that you're selling. How do you make that product and, and you're sort of two end is because you're serving my clientele in an in a indirect yeah. way right so you, sure. you, you have a you have a much larger target audience because if my clients aren't happy with your service I'm gonna take my product and my clients somewhere else right so you have a pretty big disposition that you have to manage so how do you make your product and your service that service that that is geared towards people? that use your product, plus there are people who are using their product that use your product indirectly, how do you mm-hmm. make that more likable? How do you, yeah, how do you so, continue to have that to be successful?
1: So my short answer to that is, especially in my model or passes model, if you make your clients more successful, then they will like you more, right? So if we take our photographers that are our customers and make them more successful, then they will shout from the rooftops about how great pass is. Um, Now, there's a lot underneath that. And I'd actually like, if you're okay with it, to back up, um, to explain how I figured out um, what customer success in our eyes should look like. So um, one thing I did after six months, basically beginning at the beginning of January, and we're now at the beginning of February. So um, I scheduled 100 calls with our uh, photographers. We have like tens of thousands of people that use our platform. And I sent an email at the beginning of January January, and said, I'd like to talk with 100 people and just put a link to book time on my calendar. And so I just got through a, a month where I talked for 50 hours or so with our Um, customers so four week period about 12 and a half hours out of every 40 during the work week i was talking with just customers and i gotta tell you it was pretty exhausting and ate up a lot of my time and i'm now uh, very deep in a backlog of work but it was so so informative because i now really understand some of the um, reasons that people use pass what they like about it what they don't like about it why they don't use, why they continue to use Pass over our competitors and some of the unmet needs that they actually didn't articulate to me that I think that we can solve for them. Um, a couple things that I found, um, I mentioned that there's a lot of loyalty, customer loyalty was a big criteria for me in evaluating business and that Pass has a lot of it because there are customers who've been around for years. I found out that we have a lot of behavioral loyalty In other words, people who resubscribe to us each year, but not a ton of attitudinal loyalty. People who are like, I love PASS because it does X, Y, and Z. Now, there are actually people out there. uh, It sounds like you are one of them. We're like, I love PASS because I get it. It helps me do X, Y, and Z. Um, Part of the reason that we don't have a ton of those people is we haven't done a good enough job training people on taking advantage of all the features we have.
0: Or if I may add to that, the photographers themselves are in that different subset that are, that are interested in exploring the different ways to make more revenue, enhance Mm -hmm. their own service. So there's, I, I see that, and and because I train photographers and educate them, I see that regularly as well. The sort of, there's like the people who just want to get on the treadmill and, and use the services as they come at them. And then Mm -hmm. then there's the other people who are emailing customer service and say, Hey, can we tweak this? Can I add that? Can I make this adjustment here? Uh And then the other ones who are going to go and try to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. And so when I think
1: about the success of our um, photographers, Look, I think there, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I've I've spent enough time in the photography industry to get a sense that most people, educators in the space, practitioners in the space, photographers themselves, avoid talking about the profit uh, Mm -hmm. motivation, right? Mm -hmm. People talk about, oh, it's my passion. It's my creative outlet. I love pleasing my clients. Yeah. And of course, those are benefits. But the the reason that people sustain photography for their careers over a long period of time, nobody's doing that if they're not making a profit. And so in order to sustain your passion and your creative outlet, we need to help you make a profit on your business. And I feel that people don't. That people shy away from that, feel like like it's yucky or sinful is probably not the right word, but. Um, you know, and it's important to make it about your clients, but it's also important um, to be fairly compensated for a great
0: service that you provide. That's funny you say that because um, I encounter that same paradigm, probably seven out of 10 photographers I meet. And it's interesting, another, you referenced um, Profit First. There's another book I have back here. It's called The Psychology of Money. And and in this book, uh, and I'm actually just did a podcast last week on, on psychology of money. On a lot of people who hold that mindset, mm-hmm. they, all, they, have a, they have an insecurity and almost a malice towards the psychology of money in and of itself, either because of their upbringing, um, past failures, um, never a- scarcity, never actually having that. And that the only way to break that cycle is to change the psychology and sort of your viewpoint around it. So yeah. just an interesting interesting tidbit on that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, that, that one's a good book. Good recommendation. I've actually read sure that one. Um, So anyway, so yeah, I think what we do really well is um, allow photographers who understand the value of um, including prints in their service offering to really streamline, optimize, and automate a large portion of the sale process for prints. Um, so photographers who want
0: – Stop there for a second, Trevor. Sorry. I, I just want to have clarity on that. So when, when you're saying photographers and prints, just the, the, the model um, and probably because of apathy and, and lack of, of, of a platform like yours to do this has shifted over the last 10 years, at least from mm-hmm. my perspective because I used to sell albums and prints all the yeah. time. And that model has shifted to most clients just thinking they want the digital output. They don't want to have the print or the frame or the canvas or the album or anything like that. And it's part and parcel because of, in my opinion, cell phones and everyone has phones on their, uh, the access to photography, like literally 24 seven. But I also think it, I also think that there's been an apathy in the photographer world itself uh, from the photographers to actually push those products because they didn't have a viable sales solution like yours yeah. or they didn't have the knowledge to, to, to the knowledge in of itself to actually sell something and almost I hate to say it but became lazy about it and we're just like okay you want digitals here's your digitals get it, and I can move on to my next yeah. client type of thing
1: there are probably a lot of reasons there's also that photographers are self a lot of photographers are self-taught nowadays mm-hmm. right? I think it used to be that if you wanted to become a photographer, the knowledge was so great and the resources to get that knowledge um, were really concentrated in, you had to join a commercial photography outfit to to get the equipment, to get the training. And so like when photography was kind of liberated and people could learn about photography and how to be photographers online um, using free resources, they focused on, the parts that interested them the most, right? The creative aspects, how to um, take advantage of lighting, how to do posing, the editing part, right? And that's a lot to learn in itself. And then there's the whole business aspect. And, you know, you're going to get mostly right-brained people who start in the creative world of photography and aren't um, inclined to pursue the business side of it. And look, there's... Um, maybe a loose correlation between the quality of photography and the success in business with some of the higher, um, more successful photographers that I've talked to, but like there are many great photographers out there who are not successful in business. And there are many very successful photographers who are not terribly great photographers. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a little bit of an interesting paradigm um, but
0: I, I the, can, I, I can actually like to add something to that, you, you know, you mentioned sort of like the liberation of, of photography and education. There's another piece of that, that I think needs to be considered in this, and it's probably a separate podcast, but, um, with the advent of, of digital technology and digital cameras, the learning curve and the graduate evolution that traditionally was employed in photography. I, I did an apprenticeship for an example, mm-hmm. right. and, I, and, and, so I learned photography from another master photographer, master photographers um, that were in my circle that I trained from. But um, that, that the advent of digital cameras who basically can do everything for you in an auto mode and our cell phones who can do everything in an auto mode has created a proliferation of photographers who just went out and bought a camera and didn't take the time to learn all of those liberated education models that you were just talking about and are just selling photographers to a, to an audience that doesn't necessarily really value high end photography or has never Mm -hmm. um, been part of high end photography and they're selling to that. So it's a completely different subset as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I want to go back to um, the thing that you mentioned about digital versus print, right? Um, Because um, I've, Found a lot of people who say this, and I think to some extent it's true, right? Like we, we do want to use the um, professional quality photos that were taken of us to showcase them on social platforms or on kind of in our digital sphere. Um, I do want to challenge the notion that print is like um, an unimportant part of photography, and I can do it like through personal anecdote, right? Um, and and I, there's a couple examples maybe of different situations and it's um, and it, this is more geared at photographers so photographers who just assume that their clients are um, are looking for zeros and ones on a hard drive right yeah. that's how photos are stored right um, i just don't think that many people are paying 400 500 1000 2000 5000 dollars for a photographer to come take photos of them And then the only output of that is bits and digits on a hard drive somewhere, right? I I completely agree with you. Um, And um, a good anecdote of this is just from my personal life, right? So we hired, my wife hired a photographer to take photos of us in the like kind of early October. It was what's called a mini session, uh, which you know, but maybe you have some non-photography listeners out there. My wife and I are dressed in all white. Uh, my daughter's in green. My son is in red, right? We sit down and hire a photographer, pay $400 for 20 minutes um, for her to shoot us. And I'm sure that you know exactly what the use case of those photog- photos were, right? We wanted our Christmas cards. Yeah. Big shocker, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and um, the, the process for us getting there was... I'll explain it to you. So we hired, hired a photographer a week later, she downloaded the cold edited digital images to us through a gallery platform. That's like pass, but not pass. And my wife got those like 50 or 60 images. And then for two hours on a Sunday night, agonized, instead of watching Netflix agonized over which of the two or three of those 50 should go on our Christmas card. She bothered me. And I said, I'm busy, I don't have time for this. Please stop bothering me. All right, those two, fine, those two photos. And then um, she started designing her Christmas card and waited for Shutterfly to announce their 40% off Black Friday campaign. And then when they came, snatched the coupon, took the three photos, uploaded them to Shutterfly, dealt with all of the technical glitches there, right? Created a new account on Shutterfly, checked out with a credit card, had them delivered to our house, um, and then of course mailed out. And that, I think it ended up probably costing her $250 to get the, that print order fulfilled, even you know, after the 40% off. And so I'm just thinking now, sitting there passively as the owner of a gallery platform that does literally everything in that process, um, and the photographer who used the gallery platform that also does many of those things, If she had just asked one question and put in a little bit of extra effort, she could have, instead of making $400 on every single one of those 20-minute sessions, she could have made $500 or $600 on every single one of those sessions by asking one question, what are you using these photos for? Because my wife would not have said to post on social media. She would have told the truth and said, we want our Christmas cards. And then the photographer would have said, oh, that's great. When you get your images from me, you click on a link and then there's a little shop icon on those photos um, but you don't even have to go through the process of designing the photos in the store because i i will um, take your favorites and put them into a design and then if you buy within 14 days i'll give you 40 percent off done right there and it's just easy for my wife and she might have she might be paying a little bit of a premium compared to Shutterfly, right? But the quality is better. We use professional quality labs. The photographer could communicate that. But most importantly, she doesn't spend five hours on one, two hours on one Sunday selecting the images, two hours on another uh, Friday, Black Friday, when she's got other stuff to be doing, capitalizing on a discount, uploading, right? Because the photographer had thought of exactly what the client needed and designed a solution to get her from first
0: base all the way home rather than just leave her stranded on first base. So going back to the question of how do you make a brand how do you make a brand more viable, more resonant with your customers? One of the stories that you just relayed to me was sort of focusing on the value, not necessarily the conversion, but the conversion is so easy to use that it makes it conversion based. Yeah, which is a, which is a really um, which is an element of what I focus on in my business. So, if you had to encapsulate some of the other ways that you're using Pass to build a product that is more likable for your customers. Yeah. outside of focusing on the value, not the conversion, what are some of the elements you're looking into? So
1: customer success, right? Enabling our customers to be successful. And that's broad and vague, and that's kind of intentional. But let me take the example and go one further with that. So um, this isn't her name, but the photographer's name, let's call her Jennifer, right? So Jennifer, here's my story of like, you could make an extra 100 or $200 every session if you just did all those things, right? Because she makes a profit on that sale. Of holiday cards to my wife. And my wife is very happy because she doesn't have to spend those hours designing the cards and like downloading them and arranging them, right? Um, but Jennifer does. She has to put in a little effort. Maybe she did 75 mini sessions over the course of a month. And so she hears that story and says, Trevor, that's great. Great idea. But like I'm one person, I have 75 of these to deliver, and you expect me to 75 times upload these photos, put them into a a design, send them to the client, enable the discount code, configure the emails that go out, follow up with the customer 75 times in one month. You expect me to do all that. I don't have time for that. And I think that's probably a a very common answer as to why photographers just leave it to the client, put work on the client's plate to get them from first base to home. Right. Um, And so what I think that we can do better is, for all of those customized workflows that exist for the photographers, right? The, su- the more successful photographers I've found follow playbooks. They've been able to systematize the business processes that follow their photography, right? So that so Jennifer, who took let's say seventy five mini sessions, probably has her playbook for what happens after she edits the, uh, and uploads the gallery. Um, I think that we can attach a playbook after her if we do. A half hour an hour onboarding session at the beginning of her season she can say every time i upload a mini session over the next two months i want you to do the following right Um, create an email campaign that goes out to the client sends four emails and instructs them to select their five or six favorites and once they have emailed in and selected those favorites use these five pre-templated holiday card designs um, put their favorites into those five designs and then uh, remind them that there's a coupon code available for the next seven days. And if they have any questions about the products or want to re-edit some of the pre-templated designs that I've given, then can you please offer them a white glove service? And to that, I say, yes, of course we can do that for you. Um, and how much would you pay for that? sir? <laughs> um, but what you'll find is that and Devo, one of the reasons that you've been so interesting to talk to is because you've hired somebody to do that, right? We want to be the hired hand for photographers. I've found that many photographers will outsource part of their business. For example, they're calling in the editing. I think this is fairly commonplace. People pay $100 per gallery um, or per session for, them, for the photographer themselves not to have to spend time editing. They edit like five photos and say, this is the... Editing style I would like and hand it off, right? But like when you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for photographers, at the top is uh, being creative behind the lens and pleasing clients. In the middle is maybe editing and post-production. And at the way bottom beneath the floor is like um, doing these sales and marketing campaigns and automation and configuring technology. Like nobody wants to do that, but they're still doing it. Even though they've outsourced the middle thing, editing, they haven't outsourced the bottom thing. And so I'm thinking it would make our clients more successful if we could do it for them because we know how to do it better than they do. And it would save them hours and hours and hours of time, give them back, back the time to either spend more time with clients making 400 an hour on their sessions or spend more time with their family and go on vacation, right? Either way, it's a win, but let's take that time off your plate. And I'm sure that we will capture the revenue that was already going to Shutterfly instead and put it in your pocket and your clients will be happier too. Cause now Meg didn't, my wife didn't spend five hours agonizing over the design of our holiday cards as an example.
0: So you're empowering your customers through success by generating options and products and viability so that you can do it for them so they don't have to a leave it on the table or b go out and hire somebody else so in that space of of making your brand more likable you're actually going to step in as a resource for me as a photographer and you're going to do some of the heavy lifting for me so that i can focus on my creative elements
1: yeah and if we do that well and better than you could um because we know the platform better and we know the models and we can learn from the most successful photographers if we could take the elements of success of our most successful photographers and then deliver them to the long tail of learning photographers and do it in a way where they're like oh my god i just made thousands more this year and i had to work less Uh does that make our brand more likable
0: yeah, so uh, so that's going to require, at least from my outside perspective, knowing what you have now, a, a considerable resource higher in terms to be able to meet the demands of all of those photographers who sign up for this escalated service, I'm assuming, yes? 100%, yeah. Yeah, so this new service that you'll be offering, you you called it a white glove service, so as a photographer… I would pay, I have my normal monthly fee that I have to pay to use your service. But yeah. in addition to that, I would pay, is it at tiered levels of higher level of engagement and support from a, from a white glove type application? Yeah, we'll see how it
1: develops. But the first layer of support will launch is the highest tier, right? Because mm-hmm. what I'd like to do is offer it to our most successful photographers first so that we can design the program around them. Remember how i said we can take The elements that drive success of our most successful photographers build the program around those elements and then expand them to the long tail. So we'll build the highest tier first Mm. and then the middle and then kind of like figure out ways to distill it to make it more accessible to some of our other photographers who want to elevate. The profits of their business by leveraging Th-
0: This is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. I've had several conversations with you, and i I always walk away with just sort of a, sort of a sense of um, of depth to everything. And and because you mentioned early the outset, I, I've actually started that process as well on my side. Because one of the one of the pitfalls I noticed in my workflow is that I was leaving a lot of money on the table with clients who wanted more products and wanted more service from me, but I just didn't have the resources to do that right now. Because you know I I, I book I book out like literally every week. And so, but I'm still trying to run a business. And and yeah. like you, I recognize that it's a Pareto principle here. It's like 80% of my business is understanding my business model and how it works. And 20% is the photography. Like literally, yeah. it's that's how I operate my business. Yeah. So um, what, the reasons I wanted to have you on here is sort of this idea you've taken over a new company came from a completely different industry, but the principles of business at the core of everything generally apply across all industries. Mm-hmm. So um, you, know, you you talked about making a product more easy for a client to, to access, more ease yeah. of use. You talked about what, what does the customer, being very present and mindful about what the customer wants and needs, and then building something around the customer so that you can meet them where they are and provide value to them. So instead of yeah. focusing on here's the product that existed, I've, I've taken a look at what we can do best, what a client wants most, and I'm building an intersection between those two roadways. So yeah. I love that piece. The other piece of it I wanted to chat about, because we're running out of time, um, and this is a conversation we could go on for a couple more hours, because we've jumped to open up a couple of rabbit holes, right? But in the sense of communicating this to your clients, to your ideal customer, and and the success around sharing your opinions and being firm about them and having a principle and drawing a line in the sand, where do you sit with that space and and, and sharing this brand message with your clients through social media, through your website? How does that whole position sit with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I would love to begin sharing this thing over time. First, we got to build it. Um, And I think that at least for a year or two, um, it will strictly be word of mouth because as you mentioned, we've got a, this is not something, this is not technology, right? We can't just build it once and sell it a million times, right? The more people who opt into this, the, the more people we will have to have servicing it. And so in that way, growth will be limited, right? Because, We will have to continue to build a team around the demand that comes. And so I don't think that we can light this thing on fire right away. Mm -hmm. And so I would guess that uh, at first, this is going to be invitation only. We're going to take 10 or 12 people. And then it will be referral only and um, only accept people that are kind of qualified, right, and meet certain parameters. And then as we scale it, maybe we can start talking about it a little bit more. But right now we just need to focus on who is exactly the right customer for this so that we can build out the service the right way.
0: Would you care for some dissenting opinion on that? Yeah. So I, I don't disagree wholeheartedly with the approach around it. I do think that there is a, I do think that there is a gain in your space to start a social media conversation now about where you are, where you want to be and what you're doing about that so that the buzz is starting to build around mm-hmm. some of the things you're doing and getting some of your users involved early on in the process to act as sort of like social advocates for what you're bringing forth. Because from a photographer's perspective and just a user's perspective, um, I've found and in my business of helping other clients grow their brand, that the more honest you are and more firm you are in the space of what you do best and what you really want to, build around your business and the superpower that you offer to the world is to share that with your audience and allow them to have a piece in that conversation. And that, for me, that's what social media does. So um, I'm not telling you what how you should run your business. You're right about just, that, actually. You're right about that. Yeah. I, I, we don't need to keep going into that space, but it, it's a conversation worth having around how can you build a platform that simultaneously is in its pioneering stages in a sense for what you're trying to do and involve the people who are going to be using that in that conversation to help them become your profits, if you will. Does that make sense? It
1: makes total sense. And I agree with you about um, open communication and transparency with your clients, right? Like if people can understand where where you're going and um, have in some ways a feeling of ownership over that roadmap, or at least be a part of it, then that fosters um, a good bit of loyalty, right? I and so I am very much open uh, about transparent communications, and I should probably do do better at that. I think that my ideal state is partly my personality, but also partly I think um, best marketing practice is I would rather, if you're talking about Pareto, for 80% of the marketing. Of my business to come from photographers like you who have Uh. hopefully had success with it so i want to give the microphone i don't want to have the microphone at my mouth i want to give the microphone to people to my customers who have had success with it absolutely and, and, think- and you could
0: actually build your social media presence around that centrifugal force to be honest yeah. with you and then supported by other pieces of it uh, i'm actually um, working with a country music singer who had uh, a bit of success many years ago and then she had to retire from music because she had children um, and she's now trying to break back into it and and i know you i'm look, we're both looking at the clock sorry um, but part of her Part of her new strategy that we're going to be helping her with is really telling the story of how she got where she is and using the people who listen to her music to sort of be her disciples of her music because they all sort of have this common bond, which is, you know, they have, you know, tormented backgrounds, childhoods, etc. And her music really speaks to empowering the people that have suffered these different um, types of vessels of, 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 of pain. So anyhow, um, getting off topic again but um i'd love to have a conversation with about this piece i think there's a, a there's a lot of um it, not on a podcast but just kind of offline i think there's a lot of things that um, as you're talking that i that feel like are worth having a conversation about yeah more. let's do that. um all right so in the essence of time i want to sort of just sort of recap where we were uh we were talking a little bit about <clears throat> how does a product how does a ceo build a product, build a brand that is more likable. And I sort of recapped ease of use, um, what do the customers want, enabling the customer through their own success to sort of see what they're capable of by your assistance and your facilitation. And then, and we just finished kind of rattling off, you know, some of the, some of the, ways by using today's digital platforms like social media, blogging, websites, yeah. et cetera, where people can really sort of resonate with you. Um, in terms of sort of your big picture and where you're ultimately want to see this company and what you're going on, it, do you have sort of a big vision plan of what you ultimately want this to become? Are you allowed to even share that right now?
1: No, um, it's very much a vision and look like I, um, I'll tell you what I think the perfect world would be. For us. Um, But I reserve the right to change my thinking on this to the extent that I'm provided with new information that caused me to change my (laughs) position. I think that, let's say, five years from now, what I think would be incredible is we have um, created like playbooks that make, that are distilled from the elements of success of our most successful photographers from a business and profit standpoint. And we have put them into things that can be like, I'll just call them playbooks that can basically be given to coaches around us. Right. And then the coaches can then take those playbooks and give them to other photographers who themselves become coaches. Right. And we can continue to feed that ecosystem with better and better playbooks and around our business. We have created an ecosystem of coaches that help other photographers elevate their success. And that, and basically, again, in a different way, we're instead of having the microphone at our mouth, we're handing out the microphone to a bunch of coaches. And so, people like you, Devo, who are successful on our platform, um, we can work with you to build a program around you and develop a playbook. And then you can be empowered to share that playbook with many other photographers. And then those other photographers become successful
0: yeah. and, and have
1: the playbook that they can share. And if we can amplify those elements of success in a way that creates this community of like amplification and reamplification, then I think we can have maximum impact on the community of photographers that surrounds us.
0: Absolutely, the ripple effect, isn't it? And, and, and I think that's why you and I resonated early on in the conversations around Photography House because that's what I'm trying to build, yeah. sort of that, that similar concept that can... It's a win-win scenario for me if I were to let's just pretend that I stayed and I don't just do exclusively photography anymore but if I were to just be exclusively a, a photographer it's in my best interest to help other photographers and I hear that I hear a completely opposite paradigm often from photographers like they're my competitor why would I why would I give away my trade secrets and I think early in my business I actually felt that way but I realized as I became more mature and I started running a more successful business that you know everything is connected first of all and and the more that i could share my knowledge with other photographers that the more that i empowered them to become better photographers themselves they were they would enable unconsciously to shift sort of the paradigm around an ideal client by their very work becoming better. Does that make sense? Because yeah. if I make them a better photographer, then they're providing better photography in the world, which A, forces me to continue to keep my game consistent, but it sets an expectation for the clients who are buying our photography to sort of accept and appreciate good quality work, not just point and shoot from auto mode. So um, I, I changed that shift a long time ago, and that's why I think we connected so well in the Photography House idea. It's just like, the more you can educate people, the more you can empower them, it's that ripple effect. It just makes everything in that ecosystem much more proficient and much more authentic authentically good yeah totally agree
1: and it like i think the world has a way of kind of karmically bringing it back to you you know if you are the catalyst of success for dozens of other photographers then you will naturally be um you know part of that fabric that um where um, the best practices are shared, right? There's a supportive community. you're not isolated as just one, right? There are many other benefits, and the the pond of photography is large enough for a couple of big fish to swim in it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Like anything else, you know ultimately your your career, your profession, your success ultimately it sits in your own hands. and what you do with it, And enables you to become more successful or not. And part of that is being involved in the community of things. So, This has been a good show, man. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Sorry to, um, sorry that has to end Um, before, you know, just before I get some closing thoughts from you, it's interesting making, for me, making a product more likable, it it isn't rocket science, right? It, It does, but it does require some finesse. And it sounds like you're doing that right now by stepping into a brave new world where you're, you're trying to change the paradigm to not necessarily fit your needs, but change the juxtaposition we have as users of your products so that by our success, you're more successful. So it's really cool. It really, you know, this product more likable concept, it it, it really all starts with understanding who your target audience is. And you said that at the outset of the conversation, Mm -hmm. who are you selling to and then building trust with them by communicating your value or addressing their needs or aligning your company, aligning your company objectives, you know, into that space and then maintaining consistency around it. So um, there's a lot of different pieces just to sort of recap my space on it. There's a lot of different moving parts to make your product more likable. I think you have to decide what is your value? What are you good at? What are you passionate about, and how can you solve someone else's problems, and then provide a product or a service that enables them to keep using it repetitively and sharing that with their audience, and and through that sort of compound effect, you end up creating this brand that has a legacy around it, right? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. Um, thank you for joining today, man. I really appreciate it. I hope you had a a good. I hope you enjoyed your time here with us on the always a pleasure.
1: Uh, It was great to talk to you. Appreciate you letting me tell my story.
0: Absolutely, man. Welcome to um, to this new world of entrepreneurialism. It's a Swiss Army knife, and there's never a dull there's never a dull moment, as I think you found out already. Um, not that you were living boringly before, but um, it's it's interesting to me that uh, I've been doing this for 15 years now, full time in this space, and it's like every single day I wake up and I have a whole new set of successes, a whole new set of failures, a whole new set of challenges, and a whole bunch of other shit that's coming at you that you didn't even anticipate, and you have to be able to have finesse and flexibility in order to succeed. So that's what I love most about being an entrepreneur aside it's from the fact great. that I have. Yeah. So, all right, for those of you who are listening live, thank you. I really appreciate you tuning in to today's episode of a Little and polite. Um, we hope you found today's episode conversation, scintillating, inspiring and informative. Trevor Hooten, you can find him if you're a photographer, or if you're anybody who's interested in getting into the space, Trevor, where can they find you online, yeah, we, uh, Instagram? It's
1: available at pastgallery.com. Um, And our Facebook group, as I mentioned, is called Shoot and Share. And hopefully we'll do a better job of being findable going forward. But, um, you know, for now, we're focusing on our best customers and building a service around them and giving them the microphone going forward. And I might be able to help you with that in the near future. Let's do it. Yeah, if you want to email me directly, I'm not afraid. Uh, I respond to everything that comes my way. I'm Trevor at shootandshare.com. So if you're inspired then i'd love to hear from you
0: so thank you trevor i appreciate it don't forget to sub, sub, sub let me start that over don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for more valuable insights and be notified when new episodes are released we put these out every other week this was just one more of uh, fantastic conversations with amazing individuals who are doing some really cool shit on the planet. And that's why I started this podcast, so that I could meet CEOs and entrepreneurs and business leaders like Trevor, who are doing some brilliant stuff and sharing their superpowers with the world to make the world a little bit better place. And uh, I think I believe that we have done our job in this podcast doing just that today. Trevor, oh, thanks, thanks, man. Really yeah, appreciate it. For the time, man.
1: All right.